Today's podcast is sponsored by Kari. KariWine.com, just like the native New Zealand wood. That's K-A-U-R-I Wine.com. Kari specializes in organic yeast and nutrients. Uh, I've been speaking about Kari the, each of the past seven weeks, covering all they do from, uh, well, they do lots. They do heaps brew. Uh, I've experienced their great yeast and nutrient products like Firm Control, which is a great, great organic nutrient used for fermentation. Uh, they have cooperages like Sorry and Loire. They've uh, got a great brewmouse, uh, Braumeister in two sizes. They provide technical support, winery equipment, tanks, steamers, micro-ox, and even some educational videos up on YouTube. Just visit kariwine.com. That's K-A-U-R-I wine.com. Either pick the New Zealand or Australia flag and away you go. You'll be in touch with them and they're really great. We're also sponsored by Decibel Wines. Decibel Wines are now distributed throughout New South Wales, Canberra, up in Newcastle. Uh, we're spreading slowly but surely. We're getting the word out over there in Australia. You'll start to see us in some restaurants. I had a great dinner in a place called Lovefish on the waterfront in Sydney who are pouring both the Decibel Sauvignon Blanc and uh, my Martin Barrow Pinot Noir from Decibel. So, uh, yeah, it's starting to get out there. You can order our wines direct from us from the website to Australia. So if you see one one of the wines in the shop, or, or I'm sorry, in the restaurant, and you want to order one, just come right to our website. We, we recommend sending 15 packs over there. Uh, for you guys, uh, DB Podcast is the promo code. You get 10% off your first order. So go to decibelwines.com. And, uh, yeah, again, 15 packs are the best. And we now ship, obviously, all over New Zealand, uh, Australia, like I said, the U.S., EU, all over the EU, and the U.K. as well. So, Brexiters, uh, be, you'll be okay. You can get some decibel wines. Okay, Willie D., here you go. last of three episodes I recorded in Sydney. So these are kind of a little mini Australia series within the series, within the season. Uh, I think the three episodes were, you know, each distinct, but kind of worked well together. Uh, Joe Brzezinska, who was first and was very sort of technical and scientific, and we doing all that audio stuff as well. Uh, And then Rebecca and Hamish from Banksy was a bit of a snapshot from the trenches, sort of selling wine and drinks in Sydney and, you know, how New Zealand wine and Australian wine is perceived and all this kind of stuff. Uh, Those are episodes 52 and, no, sorry, 53 and 54. And episode 55, today's episode is with Mike Benny, probably the hottest young Australian wine writer. And that sort of translates to being one of the the more important wine people in this part of the world. you know, I know you might ask yourself, I certainly ask myself, how do you get the title freelance wine writer, which is something that would pop up when you first Google Mike Benny. Um, well, it turns out it's not really a secret. You have to be a great writer, first of all, which Mike is, and you have to work your ass off, which is very evident in this discussion I had with Mike. 
he does both of those things. His story is very unique and very interesting, but if you listen carefully, there are some pivotal moments, uh, some great mentors, great respect for the craft, and again, some time in the trenches, uh, just going to work, learning, and fueling his passion for wine. Not not unlike a great wine re- or a great winemaker or great viticulturist, you know. There's that, you know, craft, and then there's some natural talent there uh, to go along with it. But you know, really working hard and spending the hours. You know, we, there's that sort of ten thousand hours thing uh, to master any subject, and certainly Mike's put that in over the last I don't know what is it, fifteen years or something. He started young in the game. And, uh, anyway, I don't need to say much more because, uh, another one of Mike's titles is that he's a presenter and he's a great public speaker. And I thought he came out, uh, really, really great conversation in, in this, uh, discussion. And it's because Mike speaks and writes very well. So here it is. Yeah, we, uh, but la- and then last year I went to Piemonte, mm. which that was ridiculously mind blowing. Like, yeah, it's good, not it? a square inch spared for either truffles, vineyards, yeah. or like some some old historic village yeah. that has great <coughs> anatex and everything. But, but you were born in Sydney, you said. Yeah, I was born in Sydney. And here you are, still. Still, I must be one of the few people in the Australian wine industry who was born in Sydney and is in Sydney. <laughs> And you just in the States, you said? Yeah, yeah, I was just two weeks in the States. What were you doing over there? Uh, sort of a mix of things, but um, first of all, w- I have a small wine brand that I work on with some mates in Tasmania, Brian, mm-hmm. and we decided whether it was intelligent or not to invest in some grapes in Oregon. One of our winemakers goes over there and works there and has done for the last couple of years. And he saw an opportunity to get very affordable, high-quality, biodynamically farmed grapes from the estate that he was working on. And awesome. so he was like, hey, guys, should we make wines in Oregon? And we were like, well, you can and we'll come over. Yeah, <laughs> you know? yeah. I think we'll all go over this year to help with the harvest and the vinification. Oregon's great. So is yeah. that Willamette or somewhere else? Yeah, it was in Willamette. It was basically yeah. in Amity. Is oh, where great. We were. Yeah. <clears throat> and so I was over there doing that, but I was also over doing some work with Wine Australia, which has been really rewarding. They did a big Australian wine. Are they doing that? Was it Defend Australia? They, is that Decanted. Decanted. Decanted oh, Australia. A few years back, a buddy of mine who's like a salmon filly was doing... Uh, yeah, this is summer. a brand new yeah. thing. It was like a four-day summer camp Okay. In, in Tahoe, on Lake Tahoe, and it was it was the most rewarding thing that I've Tahoe's probably done. Tahoe's pretty cool. Yeah, Tahoe's great. But the just the the energy and drive the precision with which the event went off the messages the connection to australia it was was it was phenomenal mm. I, I can't speak more highly of it and i'm so privileged to be involved my importer in new york is australian and uh he, who's that his name's anthony allport yeah right and um I know he i think he knows you and uh he has commented a few times about how good it was he's, he's mostly working with new zealand wine right mm. now it's just kind of the way things have landed for him <clears throat> but how good it was and good energy he's worked with with australian 
you know, sort of marketing in the U.S. Mm. And sometimes frustrating it can be to work with New Zealand <laughs> wine growers, which is, uh, I think, probably the word I would use is safe without trying to, yeah. uh, you know, I don't, I wouldn't say I would, anybody's doing a bad job per se in an individual no. person, but um, when you have to compete with the likes of Aussies, you know, being right there, but also, you know, France and Italy yeah. and all these exciting, you know, you see the marketing people from these countries and you're just like, whoa, how are we going <laughs> to Yeah. Whether it's some, you know, gorgeous Italian woman or some slick French guy and an also, you know, who really knows the stuff and comes from this historical, you know, I think we have to keep in mind that that's what we're competing with and, and what, you know, we have to raise our game to. Um, but I'm not surprised at what you say because I've been to some, you know, funk or, you know, trade show type of stuff yeah. and Aussies are always great, you know. Really well, I, my benchmark was always the New Zealand wine growers um, Pinot celebration mm. that sort of happens every three years in Wellington. The one that, when we get them here, or, well, here we're in Sydney, but when we get yeah. them to New Zealand, I think we do a great job. They were, to me, that's what Australia had to do better than. Yeah. And I was, you know, going, okay, this is, this is the benchmark. I've mm. seen the conceptual work that went into the last one, the one before that. Regionality was so well expressed through, um, you know, distilling food culture, art, music, um, and a whole range of very creative endeavor. And I thought, and plus also they're brilliantly run yeah. and with incredible wine and you're up close and personal. And I thought Australia has to do better than that. Mm. And I thought, you know what, wine Australia is capable of it. But when it actually happened and I thought it was better, I, I you know, it was, it was like a real victory in yeah. many respects because those events have been so important for me and I've been lucky enough to do keynote speeches at both the last one and the previous one. And, uh, you know, New Zealand's investment in me and I guess my investment in New Zealand, which is now almost 18, 19 years, uh, has been a very formative thing in my career. And this White Australia thing just took stuff to the next level. It yeah. was just incredible. And yeah. so um, we'll get back to Pinot 17 because I want to ask you about that. But, um, you know, what's the big push with, you know, outside of those messages that you talked about and, you know, uh, regionality and things, what's, you know, push varietal wise or, or is it just all over the show for Australia right now? Look, I think or it's style wise or whatever. I think it's a mix of things. And the approach that I've taken with um, work that I've, undertaken with Wine Australia over the last three years and also my own uh, sort of renegade events that I've hosted in, uh, in terms of pop-ups in the United States. Uh, the message has always been about, okay, what's the avant-garde doing? Because I think people have, uh, you know, a, a great verve, or at least the gatekeepers have a great verve for um, trying to unearth new discovery, trying to make a connection with sort of a grassroots undercurrent of winemaking. The way I like framing that is that, okay, learn about the avant-garde. This is really exciting. This is a new wave of Australian wine production and wine uh, ideology, but reference the past. Mm. And so, I mean, something that I've done every single time I've presented is shown people the Tyrrell's uh, old vineyard wines, which are produced in a dirt floor winery in Fudra, unsulfured until bottling, left on their lees, uh, bottled unfined, unfiltered. And I say, well, look, you know, you might be excited about what the avant-garde's doing, but that methodology is reflected through 150 years yeah. worth of history at Tyrrell's. And indeed, uh, you know, it's living history. We don't have much in the way of living history in Australia. You can go to Georgia and look at 8,000 years worth of continuous winemaking practice. Fascinating. 
what do we have in Australia to show? Well, we don't necessarily have a lot in our 200 years worth of winemaking culture, but something like Tyrrell's is, you know, an, an imperial standard to show people. And Where is that? Tyrrell's is in the Hunter Valley. In Hunter, okay. Uh, and they're just one example of several that I could be indicative about, but uh, I love showing people that while showing people the Nouveau wines because there's such a kindred nature between the two without really both parties thinking there is. Yeah. But if I think about the exciting producers that I'm drinking from Australia, uh, it is those who are doing that sort of thing, you know, naturally fermenting, leaving the wines to do their own thing, leaving them on leaves in large format neutral oak, bottling without fining and filtering. So that's kind of the, the thing that I like talking about when I'm going overseas is not just what the avant-garde are doing, but let's look back to what the historical, um, indeed classic wines of Australia have to say. Mm. And I think it's really exciting because that great loop of history uh, and then a progressive sort of pioneer set and then this avant-garde really make up a great tapestry in terms of the conversations about Australian wine. And do you see, um, you know, I, I kind of t- went into this with, with Milton because I talked to James on this a few weeks ago and uh, we talked about sort of terroir and the natural wine or I don't, I don't, I don't even like to say natural wine because I don't know exactly what it means but... Um, you know, I've made, you know, wines a little bit like that, and I have a lot of friends who do. And, uh, you know, one of the knocks that I would admit is that at times uh, it can, I don't want to say shatter terroir, but it could mask it possibly. Um, and certainly with the newer producers, uh, that can happen, it seems like to me, but I don't know what's going on in Australia as far as that goes. It's one of the, probably the most dynamic places on earth right now for... That I have seen. I mean, I, I would say way ahead of New Zealand in that sense, you know, as far as organics. And um, and some would say it's a little drier here, so that helps. But <laughs> I can relate to that. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Look, Australia has one of the most exciting contemporary wine cultures on earth right now. I think when you combine freedom, uh, a sense of daring do that Australians generally totally. have anyway... Yeah, yeah. Uh, and then uh, the liberty to produce things that are then actually saleable in market because there's so many venues and businesses that support that kind of wine. Mm. Um, it's unleashed a great potential here in Australia and really brought on a new currency for Australian wine. And it's happening in literally every single wine region that I can think of. Yeah. Uh, and that's, you know, I'm talking about all 60 plus wine regions in Australia. You, I could almost pull out person's name from each place where there's some form of experimentation going on and that's from big company down to the ultra small boutique producer or even those who are just eking out buckets of stuff so it's it's a it's a very vibrant exciting market but i think that the great thing about australia is that if you go to the capital cities there are venues that then support that wine well that was what i was going to say next is you know not i wouldn't say there isn't a support for that in new zealand it's just that our domestic market is small enough where it's it's tough for a lot of people to do that and get traction without trying to export and then you know we all know the the challenges of that uh though you know the ex a lot of the export markets like america um and australia are supporting those kind of wines as well but it's it's pretty convenient to have you know places like sydney and melbourne to you know right on your doorstep to work with um and you know auckland wellington are doing better and getting better but they're just smaller markets you know yeah look i've seen that happening over there uh and kind of gotten excited and i've, I've been following the trail over in new zealand 
um, for, as I said, almost 18 years. Uh, but to, to reference your question about terroir and masking of, uh, look, I mean, it's a very long piece of string because for me, people who over oak or over acidify totally, at yep. the kind of commercial end of the spectrum, mm. to me, are masking terroir while they're trying to claim that they have a sense of purity and and um, and superiority over wines that perhaps fall into the spectrum of what have been commonly called faults, but for some people are an irrelevancy. And for me, I always reference my classic learning in wine when I'm approaching wine tasting, but in some respects it's being made redundant by a younger generation who simply aren't interested. Yeah, they just don't care. So. No, they're picking up bottles in shops and going, give me the cloudiest thing and the weirdest thing you've got. Yep. They're going to restaurants and in groups on mass buying as a collective expensive bottles of you know hyper wild edged wines. Yeah. And so I've had to readjust my thinking in many respects. Of course, I support this wholeheartedly and I'm very invested and interested in the movement towards more creative wine making uh, but in terms of the terroir conversation I don't know I mean the the yin and yang of that concept really does always pendulum swing across what the winemaking overlay is and therefore winemaker influence yeah you certainly if you actually know what's going on in any said winery um I, I'm playing devil's advocate there because I think that argument's kind of bullshit for the same reasons that you do and that, you know, if you actually know what's going on in the winery and the amount of, you know, which is great, technology and manipulation, you know, finger quotes, manipulation and the sense of, you know, just uh, filtering, fining, anything like that, um, you know, is that, I guess you've just made the terrible, <laughs> like, you know, and, and who's to say that if the wine is, you know, say orange wine for example if it's made properly uh and it doesn't mean you know and if barrels are topped and things are done correctly and you know brett is monitored and 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 watched out for from the get-go then those wines can have more terroir than anything you know that they you know and well, i've tasted I mean, them you know for me orange wines yeah i mean look why are red grapes given the luxury of spending yeah, time exactly. with skins but whites aren't and mm. how can you claim that red wines must have skin contact but white wines shouldn't mm. i mean to me that's a really weird dichotomy sure i get it press skins off ferment juice white wine see terroir mm. but really if you want ultimate terroir surely the skins need to be involved that's what touches the universe during a growing season yeah uh, and removing the skins is a wine making overlay which is fine and produces wines of clarity and freshness that we enjoy to drink no doubt but for me, definitively, if I want to see the whole picture of a season, then skins must be involved in some respect. Yeah. Pressing off skins to me seems like it's a shortfall for terroir. I mean, what happens next is, of course, a different scenario, but I just think there's a lot of strange naysaying around orange wines as if there's some freak show when, A, there's a really long historical connection to maceration of skins that's still writ large in places like Mosul where 24 hours to 48 hours skin contact produces exquisite Riesling that we celebrate. Yeah. Uh, old Australian winemaking standards would have seen some form of skin maceration for white wines. Uh, you know, the notion of clarity only comes about with the advent of things like the cross-flow filtration units yep. invention or similar. But, you know, I'm all about the breadth of wine in the universe, so I really don't want to, you know, be demonstrative about one thing being better than others, but I find orange wines exceedingly fascinating and delicious and versatile in terms of their application in dining and lifestyle. Yeah, I guess uh, haters going to hate, right? That's, that's right. That's right. <laughs> and, well, I, and I could, you know, I've, 
don't know, some of the wines I've made have been weird for just other reasons that mm. I wouldn't, people say, why would you do that? And I'm like, I don't, just did, because that's kind of what happened. And I thought, I don't know better or something, you know, and sometimes being a bit ignorant and trying things works, you know, and, uh, you know, I, I, what's funny about, you know, if there's a spectrum of how you're supposed to make a white wine all the way on the left and how you're supposed to make a, you know, classic red wine all the way on the right, both of them are coming towards the middle, you know, with some nouveau style reds that, you know, may spend hardly much time at all on skins and are approaching almost rosé. <laughs> and they, people want some, yeah, this is a fresh, light, unoaked red, uh, which, you know, there, people might say, oh, well, that you're trying to be trendy. And it's like, some of these Italian wines have never seen oak at, mm -hmm. ever. And they're considered great, you know, awesome commercial wines, you know, that are, you know, price competitive. They might be entry level, but, you know, it's like a big misnomer in the industry that, oh, everything needs to go into barriques. And, you know, it's kind of a new world thing, too. You know, that was the other thing I was saying. I was in Piedmont that I was just like, fuck, I was so pissed off. I was looking at everything was large format in these giant oak casts. And I was like, this is all I want to do. You yeah. know, I put my mouth back into 500 liter punchins now. I wish I had 5,000 liter stuff to just age everything in. I don't really care that much about oak. I don't want oak to be bad. And if there's some nice oak, that's cool. But yeah. Uh, you know, we sort of paint ourselves into a corner with, with style and like, well, no, this is the way it's supposed to be because, I don't know, Bordeaux or Burgundy does it this way maybe or something. And Well, it's just a lot of people uh, are not confident in their expression of flavor. They're not confident in their winemaking uh, being a bit more expressive. Uh, they're not confident in being intuitive about fruit and then the resulting fermented product. And therefore, they've been guided very heavily by the science-based learning and understanding that's usually university-derived, which is fine. Uh, but I think that there always has to be a bit of unlearning when you learn yeah. to be able to create something that's unique and authentic that sort of represents your mores because color-by-numbers winemaking results typically in quite boring wines. Yeah, well, I th again, it goes back to the final you know, product or who's, t who's drinking it. And it, thankfully, there's a lot of young people that are well you know they want to try a lot of different things so uh it's a good time it's exciting you know i get worried yesterday at this trade show i had you know i'm like a tiny producer and it's my first time in australia i think i had seven wines on the table yeah <laughs> i'm like looking down I'm like what am i doing you know <laughs> <laughs> and you know outside of maybe the Sauvignon blanc everything's like pretty small production you know like and uh comparatively to the, the greater wine world but it is because i ultimately have the confidence in the fact that you know if it were me on the other end of it and i was drinking xyz wine i'm like what else do they make you know or what's oh did you ever try their this yeah let's try that one you know and and uh you get fascinated with a, a producer for a little while so um anyway that's cool what uh how was Tahoe? Tahoe was pretty cool. Yeah, Tahoe, Lake Tahoe was... Did you do any wake surfing? That's what last time <laughs> I was there, I did. Uh, somebody was like, you're going to try this. And I was like, okay. And that was a rush. <laughs> I would have liked to have... And guests at the decanted... Australia decanted uh, wine immersion program of Wine Australia were able to choose a number of lake side activities. Yes. But I had speaking duties on either uh, side of the activity session. So... I decided to sort of rest, refine my was notes. Was it at and, uh, Olympic Village, or were you guys? No, it was at a it was at a resort style facility. I mean, it was quite lavish. Yeah, they have a, res a nice resort there at the what was it Squall Squall Creek Squall and uh, that's yeah. exactly the one. There's a great wine shop in that Squall Valley. Yeah, uh, little 
outdoor mall they have there. Yeah. And they did they do a wine festival every year. And there's actually some interesting wines from up there that come out. Uh, California's just a great place, you know. Yeah. Good place to visit. Um, outside of the fires. That's right. Um, so uh, kind of going back to, I guess, Pinot 17. This is where I first... Uh, you know knew of you or saw you speak and i was a bit intrigued first because of the wines you chose um and also i just you seem like pretty relatable and somebody that i so when uh, a mutual friend of ours brahman suggested i said like, yeah i could talk to that guy you know <laughs> seems like he's he's approachable and um but i am still thinking about that uh was it a swiss pinot yeah, from that, Mythopia. that was such mm. a fascinating wine and just overall like it's a when people want to ask about wine it's an example i bring up that i say this is a project of wasn't it something like some scientists and they wanted a product that it's basically a, a yeah a mesh between ecology and agriculture mm. um and hans peter schmidt who is the man behind it well him and his family uh, run a number of these, I guess you call them experimental, but now they're sort of written into the framework of deep-seated research, uh, agriculture projects across Europe. And the example in viticulture is, is quite um, strongly described, but basically each hectare of vines has to have a 50 square meter forest. Now forest can be made up of various components, but typically is tertiary or secondary crops so it's things like fruit trees nut trees mm. herbs flowers um, and can include things like beehives uh, bird boxes and within the vineyard itself outside of that forest as he describes it uh, there are secondary and tertiary crops in the rows which are then used as sustainable production for sale so that you can actually make money from secondary and tertiary crops so when I visited first there was strawberries growing in the rows and he had seeded before that uh, potatoes and they were able to be harvested and sold as part of the sustainability of the vineyard site. Uh, alongside that, there was animals that interact with the property. So there was chickens and sheep, which were used for uh, defoliating and also for fertilization. And of course, they were used for egg production and also for meat production. So it was a really complete closed loop fascinating thing to look at i mean you looked at the vineyard and you saw a garden of eden you didn't see yeah. a vineyard this yeah. is no monoculture and yet surrounding the mythopia vineyard is stark monoculture so it's quite a fascinating in what there's just industrial farming just around industrial it? grape growing grape yeah. growing oh okay. yeah industrial grape growing as far as the eye can see valet is sort of the fruit bowl of grape growing in in switzerland uh and and Hans Peter's wines are quite uniquely made in that they're all left completely entirely up to their own device. He basically harvests whole bunches, lets them ferment, presses off, puts them into barrels, and then he bottles by barrel selection. So if the barrel's not ready, yet it's made from the same grapes, he won't bottle that barrel, but he'll bottle the other barrel next to it because that's ready. Uh, so you get this quite unique profile to the wines. So individual barrel bottles, like... That's right. The, so not blending of barrels. Though. No. Oh, okay. Yeah, so it's individual barrels bottled at the time that it's right to bottle. Wow. And of course, because fermentation varies between vessels and you know goes on its own way, uh, they create quite unique expressions of the place. But then he does qualitative survey of his wines to make sure that the production methods are then 
supported by a wine that is of high quality. Mm. So it's it's a very, very complete detailed study and he was most compelled by grape growing, formerly as a agronomist and uh, researcher in agriculture, uh, to be able to have something that is scored. I mean, yeah, he could yeah, have exactly. Used coffee beans, he said, but you know it's hard to score against it. He could have used wheat, but wheat you don't really score bread as a finished product. Uh, so wine drew him in for that reason. But now he makes you know very idiosyncratic but wonderful expressions from this property. And as I said, has a coterie of people across Europe, big, small, short, tall, who are all using this agricultural technique to try and provide even more data for him to see if this is something that's viable. I mean, but for me, it was the sheer visceral pleasure of seeing... It's crazy. A vin- uh, yeah. And I think what's interesting about it, it kind of goes back to your unlearned thing, is that it takes an enormous amount of confidence... Um, to first of all to, and to take on such an endeavor but also to say uh, I don't know what his parameters are for a barrel being ready um, but then but to just do that first of all but then to go to, and, and I think it's really interesting that he keeps evaluating down the road and keep getting better and it sounds like a pretty fascinating individual I'd like to meet someday you know he's, he's a very very intelligent and compelling person to spend yeah, time I can with. imagine um, because that's that's a big endeavor. Um, anyway, yeah, that was so. That, that was when I sort of found out officially who you were. I'm sure I had read something by you at some point, but I'm pretty. Uh, one of the good things about doing this podcast is my curiosity and um, possibly naivete that uh, I'm not afraid to ask somebody to do something. Or and uh, uh, I am very curious. I'm trying to learn more about Australian wine myself. You know my. There's probably a, a few moments in my Australian wine knowledge, which was running my family's restaurant in Philadelphia or being a part of that. It's been in the family since Prohibition. But, you know, when the Shiraz thing hit uh, in the 90s in the States and it was, wow, what is it? You know, I it distinctly remember it being the first like huge wine boom of some sort of an imported wine. Uh, and, you know, since then, you know, we had our Malbecs and, th- you know, other things have happened, and but probably nothing as big as that was when it hit. And I always, I always joke around that I think people just like to say the word Shiraz because, <laughs> guys, give me one of those Shirazi Shiraz things, things you know. Yeah. And um, so it's that. And then when I first moved to New Zealand, uh, I used to go to a blind tasting every Thursday night, and there was some decent uh, some guys who had some amazing sellers. Uh, and I was just a student, so I had some pretty a pretty average collection uh and they would but i would learn more about australia that way and then more recently in the last year or so coming back to sydney and i've been fascinated by grenache here Mm. it's been the one grape to me that's been like whoa this is almost unsettling how cool and different it is Mm. and how many different styles i had three or four yesterday that were all different and i enjoyed Mm. them all uh and so that's exciting and then of course the fact that you know the boom and bust of Shiraz as far as pricing and you know the fact that in America they don't necessarily want to talk to too many Australian distributors at the moment uh, I think that'll come back um, and that China's been a big uh, importer of Australian wine so um, kind of a long loaded question there but you know uh, outside of the uh, you know the exciting things happening in the natural wine movement you know uh, where do you see the direction going as far as... Uh, uh, yeah, look, I, I think a clarification of what uh, some of the more iconic styles of Australian wine. It sounds slightly boring to try and reinvest in the past, but 
you're right, Grenache. I mean, look, that's a, a grape variety. Um, if we're looking at um, monovarietal wines that should be shouted from the rooftops, I think in many respects it's a more appropriate grape variety and produces better results and more uh, you know, character-filled wines from the various warm climate wine regions that have been touted as Shiraz lovers' paradises. Mm. Uh, Grenache provides perfumed, medium-weight, savoury, uh, finely wrought wines that are a bit more fresh and vital at times than some of the more concentrated, powerful styles that are produced with Shiraz. It seems also that most people tend or to... Or Cabernet for that matter. Or Cabernet for yeah, that matter. Yeah. But the great thing about Grenache production in Australia is is most people don't throw the new oak at it. Most people don't feel the need to acidify. Most people don't throw in the tannin powder. They let Grenache do its own thing mm. because they often see it as the secondary wine in the folio. But really, old vine resources, including the oldest Grenache vines on earth, um, plus the ability to produce a wine that has a bit more drinkability, particularly in terms of the climate and sort of cultural mores of Australia. Let's include drinking outdoors, drinking yeah, before midday. Yeah, it's pretty funny that yeah, you have Light, these yeah. giant, giant heavy alcohol wines and it's like and you have about 40 degrees outside yeah, and you're just like, oh. It. Yeah, and <laughs> we, we take most of our food cues from the Mediterranean or from Southeast Asia. I mean, it's a rare person who wouldn't have garlic, ginger and chili in their pantry to use probably weekly, uh, let alone the pastas and grills and salads that go on in most of our lifestyle. We're proximate to the sea, so seafood is part of the bounty of our consumption. And yet thumping big reds, uh, the metier. Yeah. There's about a month a year you can drink them. Yeah. But Grenache seems to have much more simpatico feel to how we live. So I think that's a kind of important thing. I think that Australia's... Um, you know, other cultural heritage touchstones, things like, uh, you know, compelling old vine Marsan, which, you know, the world over doesn't necessarily equate with Australia, but is something that we have a resource of and some interesting wines being produced from it. Semyon in the Hunter Valley, which is, you know, the squeeze of lime that you need for seafood. I mean, that's its great purpose is not only maturing into exquisite, developed, character-filled white wine, but also to provide that freshness and balance in most of our diet by just being that citrus addition. It's mm. incredible how that works when they're such, when they're produced as a youthful white wine. And then outside of that, I think not looking to heritage, but looking to future. Um, global warming plus also drought plus also general climate issues equals a necessity to look outside of the noble varieties to some of the more interesting varieties from warmer climates in Europe. So Mediterranean varieties readily come to mind. And with that, we've seen uh, you know, Fiano and Nerida Avila and Muscat of Alexandria and Vermentino and other varieties begun their journey into our grape vernacular. And I think that's a really exciting development as well, is that the freedom of Australia has led us down a pathway where experimenting with varieties that are unusual to most consumers um, is becoming a byword to quality and also a byword to finding what I like to call the carafe wines that we miss so much in Australia. Yeah. You think about your great experiences in Europe, Piazza, carafe, tumbler, chilled white or red, doesn't matter, a little plate of some sort of snack. We miss that in Australia, but we dearly need it because our cultural ties are much more similar to that kind of outdoor lifestyle, alfresco dining, yeah. drinking at midday, than we actually really care to think about. And so it's wonderful to see those sorts of varieties beginning their journey in Australia uh, to speak more clearly of how we live, eat, breathe, drink. Um, 
Oh no, that's a sort of long-winded. What was a long-winded question? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> so uh, yeah, there's 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 a two there's a there's the two parts to the, to the answer. To be succinct, historical wines and the contemporary, mm. and I think the mesh between the two is where Australia's nexus of excitement is for most people who don't live in Australia. Yeah. And what about uh, you know sort of rewind a second? Uh, you know, I said you were born in Sydney. Uh, Journalist by trade originally, or yeah, look, a complicated story. Well, let's get into it. What, how, sure. did you, how did we end up here? Yeah, how do we end up here? In this funky neighborhood. That's it? right, Newtown. Um, during university, where I was studying both a degree in media and a degree in law, I worked first of all at a publishing company, um, where I was working in the promotions publication promotions department. Let's call it marketing whatever. I mean, I was filing and faxing and writing the odd press release because they worked out that I could write okay. Uh, that was pretty interesting because it meant that people like Ian e. Prue or Justine Gardner kind of you know, orbited through my little weird world at the back of the office space that I was, uh, in, that I was located in at the time. Then my next job was working at a radio station. And so I was doing news and current affairs journalism while I was at university. And that went on for about three years. And by the time I got to my fourth year of university, when my law degree became the primary focus and my media degree had been completed, I decided that I just wanted, in inverted commas, a dumb job. Yeah. I had had serious jobs in publishing and radio news and <coughs> current affairs. Uh, and I wanted something that was simple so I could focus on the law degree and just get past it. And so about 45 seconds walk from my apartment in King's Cross was a bottle shop. And there was a sign out the front that said, minimum three years experience in wine, position available. So I walked in with my resume and slapped on the counter. And there was three quite stately looking gentlemen at the counter. Uh, and I said, look, I live around the corner. I'll fill your fridges and drive your van. And they said, do you have any wine experience? And I said, yeah, I once drank three quarters of a four liter cask of white wine and spewed it up in a park. Does that count? <laughs> and they didn't laugh. They looked down their noses at me. And the very British gentleman who was there at the time said, I think you'll see the doors over there. Yeah. And so I walked out and about a month later, I got a phone call from the same British gentleman saying, Mike, it's not a very good look to turn up late to your first shift. You're an hour beyond when we scheduled you. <laughs> and I said, right. I had not been told of this, but I ran down there and started filling fridges and driving the van. And I ended up being at this business for about nine years. Oh, Jesus. Yeah. After that moment. And first of all, it was just filling the fridges and driving the van. That was when I was, uh, finishing my law degree off. Uh, I did work part-time under a solicitor working as a junior lawyer for a period of time after I finished university. Uh, but my boss and great mentor, a man called David Matters, who established this place called Best Sellers, and he's now in his 30th year there or something similar, um, became a very vivid and potent person in my career. He taught me you have to learn a lot, you have to taste a lot, you have to enunciate clearly, but you have to have a good sense of fun. Mm. And he, I can't thank enough for how he shaped the way that I've approached the Australian wine industry. The very posh English gentleman offered to buy me uh, suits and you know, dress up my wardrobe because he felt concerned that me representing the business looking like I do quite casually was not the right thing for a, you know, for a dynamic and serious wine merchant. Uh, but this business was about 85% corporate. So my life was spent in boardrooms, ironically, of law firms, uh, banks, finance companies, 
uh, accountants. Selling direct to them. Selling direct into the top end of town and also providing high-end wine for their boardrooms. But also included people like James Packer's seller or uh, Russell Crowe. Uh, At the time, not the Prime Minister of Australia, but now the Prime Minister of Australia, Malcolm Turnbull. And then on the flip side, cool things like Julio Iglesias cruised through and asked us to drop the shutters and leave him shop for an hour in the shop. Uh, we looked after De La Soul when they came to Australia. So it was this incredible, yeah. It was this incredible workplace where every day was different and you were dealing with the high end of Sydney and the wines we were drinking, the bottles we were opening, the clients we were dealing with. It was just indomitable. It was incredible. And I just caught this buzz. And then that you could travel and you'd learn about geography and science and art and culture. And that would be part of the framework of, of my learning on a day-to-day basis. I was just hooked. So I worked with him uh, for nine years, ending up becoming the general manager of that business. But about halfway through that tenure, uh, I, I sort of started getting a little bit itchy-feated, looking to what would be next in my career. I thought I would never leave. I loved the job so much. Uh, but I started to think, wow, there's this James Halliday guy and this Hugh and Hook guy, and they get to write about wine and travel, and they get to go to Europe and see vineyards. And you can write about it. Hey, I used to be a journalist. Maybe I'll, you know, mm. start knocking on some doors. And so that's what I did. About halfway through my nine years at bestsellers, I started going to trade magazines and saying, hey, I used to be a journalist. Look, I've got no wine writing experience, but can I do something? And everyone was like, mm, no, you've got to be a wine writer to write here. And I said, okay, how about I write about your events? And so I started getting my foot in the door in trade magazines. And then when I suddenly realized that I was getting a, a fair amount of work in these trade magazines, um, I decided that I would be brave and launch out into a freelance career. Very foolhardy, but I thought to myself, you're never more creative than when you're your hungriest. Absolutely, yeah. you got to challenge yourself. Got to you challenge. Yeah. So after nine years, and this is now 10 years ago, almost exactly, uh, I decided to go and pursue a freelance writing career. And very, very luckily, a number of things started happening. One was that, um, somebody recognized that I was tasting quite a bit of wine and that I might be useful in the Australian wine show system. Uh, the Len Evans Tutorial, which is the world's most exclusive wine program, accepted me after the fifth attempt at applying to come and be part of that. Uh, and then Judy Saris, my wonderful editor from Gourmet Traveller Wine Magazine, invited me to write for her. And I was building up the courage to show her a body of work at the time. Mm. And an email came through and she said... Mike, you seem to be doing some dynamic things. Would you be interested in writing for us? And so I started writing for Gourmet Traveller Wine. And from there, things snowballed. But I had some goals. And one was I wanted to be writing for a, a national newspaper. I wanted a national food magazine. And I wanted to be in an airline magazine. And I thought all were ambitious. Uh, but I worked almost tirelessly and very um, luckily and also through Gourmet Traveller, though, is not a... Gourmet Traveller Wine Magazine. That's nationally... Yeah, it's a wine magazine. Yeah. So oh, so that was one of them. That was, yeah, oh, okay. I wanted to write for Gourmet Traveller Wine yeah. Magazine more cool. than anything at the time. Uh, but the other things I've managed to tick off as incrementally yeah. and even get a bit of work in international magazines as well, like Decanter in the UK um, and Harper's in the UK. So I've, it's been a, a great sense of adventure and pursuit that has led me to this place. Uh, but I'm pretty tireless and dogged about my work. And, and one thing I think a lot of people would say is that I probably work too much. Um, but, you know, I'm just, I'm very determined about this career to make it sustainable. And I never wanted to be, you know, smash and grab in an approach. 
And so, um, like the wall that sits behind us where there's some 2,000 sample bottles, and I diligently taste some 30 to 40 wines a day if I'm in Australia, always in, um, if possible, in brown paper bags. Uh, and that was something that David Matters back at Best Sellers taught me was that you have to taste, you have to enunciate. Yeah. You've got to be able to, it's, you know, it's like being, and this sounds facetious, but it's like being an Olympic athlete. If mm. you don't run every day, you can't do a marathon. Well, I think there's a big uh, misconception out there or, you know, that if you you want to write on your business card, uh, freelance or writer or whatever it is, that you're probably going to work a hell of a lot more than the guy who works for said company. Yeah. Uh, there's in the, you know, the freedom of flexibility, it usually uh, results in working all the time. And that's, you know, like similar with me. I've been working for producers for 10 years and I made the leap. Uh, last year to go full time with my wines and uh, I have friends who say like wow that's great and I'm like yeah <laughs> sort of like not okay yeah everybody understands the financial pressure but <laughs> yeah there's no you can never stop like you know there's always something to do you know yeah. and it's pretty, when when it's and uh, you know particularly when I'm guessing you're roughly around the same age as me a little younger a little older I don't know but uh, you know we're in it now at the age where like you know, if you're not doing it now, yeah. you, you better be just working your ass off um, mm. because you're not going to be able to do it as much in 20 years. And, you know, you're kind of hitting the stride right now. So mm. you got to make hay while the sun shines, I guess, you know. That's right. Um, and you've been in, how long have you been in this place? Yeah, here? so uh, PNV Wine and Liquor Merchants sort of came about as a, an idea that really distilled something about the community that I live in here in Newtown in the inner west of Sydney. Uh, there's a great many businesses that all sort of cohabitate uh, in a, this neighborhood. It's a great neighborhood. I yeah. Because I walked around a little bit just a minute ago and I was like, there's every kind of restaurant here. Yeah. There's a lot of cafes. There's every kind of little shop. Yeah. Know, it's kinda, and they're all funky. There's a theater. There's comedy. There's, you know. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a cool place. one of the most exciting neighborhoods on earth. And I yeah. don't say that with any, you know, light-hearted nature. I mean, there is so much going on around here. Uh, and I'd been obviously working in and out of some of these businesses, doing some education work, just pro bono. I had my friends at Mary's, which is this den of iniquity settled in an old church with graffiti over the front of it, graffiti inside, playing heavy rock and roll. It's shots and beers and burgers and fried chicken, but it has an extraordinary wine list that is curated really super finely, mm. you know, with back vintage rarities oddball wines uh you know exquisite burgundy from very very high profile natural wine producers um it's phenomenal and so i've been in and out of these businesses and these friends of mine who own mary's said you know have you ever thought about doing a bottle shop again and i said no you know holding stock i and need another debt. job yeah <laughs> that's right well i already had the the, the rootstock sydney you know sustainable food and natural wine festival that you know worried me for three months a year as we got yeah. up and running each year so i didn't really need more work but then lou dowling who was their uh long-serving sort of project manager for all the businesses that they've run she came to me one day and said mike i'm actually really serious about this bottle shop and so i said okay i i, I, I want in but i want to be able to have an education space and i want to be able to have an office that invites the neighborhood in like a cooperative uh so that anyone can use it anytime and i want to to be a spot that we have, you know, at least weekly education seminars because I don't think we should be doing a bottle shop without having something more holistic. 
and without having something that allows our neighborhood to cohabitate. And so we did it. We found a building in Enmore Road, Newtown. It's two stories. The top floor is uh, an open plan office space, tasting room, licensed to fit people to host education. Uh, and we use it liberally. Uh, and winemakers are invited to use it however they like as a place to hot desk, as a place to host other wine trade. Uh, and we it's also. Good to know. Yeah, it, and the other thing we do is every three weeks, about 15 businesses that all work in this inner west area, all with a kind of simpatico mores for supporting boutique avant garde wine, craft beer, artisan spirits, and, and a kind of sense of adventure with the businesses, we get together and we taste. So a winemaker will come in, or a spirit distiller, or a brewer, and we sit down as a business together and talk and sort of collaborate on things. Uh, and try and create a, a culture that sort of supports what this neighborhood is known for, dynamic eating, drinking lifestyle, uh, and make it a stronghold. And it's been really exciting because it's meant that cross-pollination between, say, Continental Deli, this fantastic sort of 1950s-themed canned fish, um, <coughs> they can their own spirits, they can their own cocktails, they've got an extraordinary cheese cabinet, all this sort of stuff. It looks incredible to walk in. They were here last night doing a not wine and cheese matching night um, with our very talented events manager. And we've had Stinking Bishops, the actual dedicated cheese shop across the road, come in and do activities in here. Tio's Cerveceria, who are experts in mezcal and tequila, come in and do master classes. So this, this so, you know, collective of ideas is all being distilled into these amazing events and, and just making this business more potent, but also our community more exciting and vibrant yeah and that was always the, the idea it was the wheels never are turning for me right now i'm thinking get a few friends from hawks bay winemakers and come over here and do something in the neighborhood yeah, you know that's and it show you guys a bunch of wines that don't make it over the ditch you know that's it yeah that'd be cool um mm. well yeah sort of speaking of that um you know back to new zealand wine uh, you know what do you think the perception is uh currently and you know, maybe delve into the past a little bit as uh, you did before with Australian wine uh, of New Zealand wine in Australia and then you know if you uh, have any thoughts on you know what you think it's like in the States comparatively to the mm -hmm. UK I've never been to the UK um, just been in mainland Europe so it's a little tougher to gauge yeah. um, from there but uh, yeah yeah, what are you? yeah look uh, 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 New Zealand wine is very well received in Australia. I mean, you look at AC Nielsen statistics and in the top 10 of whites drunk in Australia, there's several New Zealand wine producers. And yes, it is Marlborough Sauvignon Blanc, typically produced by uh, the larger manufacturers of mm -hmm. commercial Marlborough Sauvignon Blanc. But the ready acceptances, the ready, the ready acceptance of New Zealand wine in Australia has been built in two pathways. One is commercial Sauvignon Blanc consumption, mass market, and the other is premium Pinot Noir. Yep. And those two things are pivotal. Uh, I think people enjoy exploring New Zealand wines. And I think that um, the kind of commonality between cultures has also been quite a helpful thing for New Zealand's incursions into Australia. My history with New Zealand wine goes back to Best Sellers days, the, the bottle shop that I worked in. And they were the first to actually take New Zealand wine to consumers on a large scale and show them beyond those two pillars. Uh, the New Zealand wine events that bestsellers ran in their final years were up to seven, eight hundred consumers coming to try up to 70 different New Zealand wine producers. I mean, these were phenomenal events. 
And so I was drawn into that because I basically had to run the back end of them. So I got to knew, know a lot of New Zealand wine producers. Then the second thing that this very amazing uh, boss of mine, David Matters, did was he sent me over about 16 years ago, about my fourth year, I was his assistant slash aspiring general manager. He sent me over to New Zealand and said, come back with 10 wine producers. We're going to start an import company that focuses on boutique producers out of New Zealand. Let's not focus on Marlboro Sauvignon Blanc. Let's not necessarily focus on Pinot Noir. And I went over there and met an array of amazing people. Perhaps most formative in that was Duncan Forsyth from Mount Edward. Sure. Uh, and he opened a lot of doors for me. But I went as well uh, to Mike and Claudia Weersing, who at the time were putting canes in the ground on their remarkable property, Pyramid Valley in Canterbury. Mm -hmm. uh, and I went back each year for the next four years they had no fruit the next year the second year they had some but they hadn't produced wine and i didn't care mm. i was building a friendship with them i actually i loved them to death they were you know their mentors their dear friends their confidants and and i was watching their project unfold and thought this will be extraordinary when it hits the ground running uh and you know fortunately that was what happened it was remarkable that I could be there for the start through and, and see how this currency of their ideology would reveal itself. Down the road was Marcel and Sherwin Geeson at Bell Hill and I made the same approach Just as there. Just saw them last week, great people. Yeah, they're, they're dear friends. Yeah. You know, these are people that you know, some 16 years later have produced extraordinary wines that have come through the ranks in New Zealand to be at the apex. And there was other producers out there. There was Sam Weaver at Churton in Marlborough who was considered a madman for planting on slopes and deciding to you know farm his vineyard biodynamically from the get-go uh and 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 all, and all this spectrum of interesting smaller producers really lit something for me and it's had me back in new zealand every single year at least once if not twice three times a year to investigate and continue the relationships and to continue monitoring what the culture of new zealand wine um has to offer and i think that in australia the the premier venues and the great wine bars are very, very keenly aware of the diversity of things that go on beyond Marlboro Sauvignon Blanc and whatever generic New Zealand Pinot Noir presents itself as. In the United States, I think there's a sort of similar but perhaps less opportune relationship with New Zealand. I think Americans love New Zealand people, probably don't see the best of New Zealand wines, which is something that occurs with Australia too. Mm -hmm. um, but I think they enjoy the idea of this, you know, the image of New Zealand that does so well, pristine environment, premier wines that are made from Pinot, or notwithstanding Hawke's Bay's uh, multitude of reds from Cabernet and Merlot and to an extent Syrah. Uh, and, you know, largely accept Sauvignon Blanc as part of their repertoire of drinking. Uh, in the UK, it's probably been a little bit harder in terms of getting cultural immersion there, but there are a couple of New Zealand wine specialists who's done a very good job of yeah. um, giving headway to some of the smaller producers and also reinforcing a bit of a cool message around New Zealand wine. Uh, so, it, I mean, it's an interesting place for New Zealand to be. There's a very loud voice, a very small volume in some respects. Uh, yeah, we punch then, above our weight, that's for sure. Yeah. Uh, I think it's kind of interesting what you, just from what you're you're saying to me coming from Australia and um, the challenge is, you know, focusing more on Hawke's Bay where I live. Uh, I spent quite a bit of time in Martinborough doing the Pinot where I think Martinborough's had probably some historic success in Australia, particularly in that, um, you know, premium Pinot and they are an old, old, older region and everything where Hawke's Bay, 
because it's an old region and this sort of more traditional and it you know and let's be honest it makes chardonnay red blends and syrah three things australia doesn't need more of <laughs> yeah uh you know i have a lot of i know of a lot of great producers in hawks bay that sell a lot of wine elsewhere but not a lot in australia yeah. um uh, there's a couple small guys that that do okay because they're extremely focused but mm. you'd be surprised at some of the wineries that are really good that can't really get traction over here um but not to say that it wasn't we didn't work hard for me to get my wines here but it was a lot easier because i don't make red blends syrah <laughs> or uh or um, chardonnay i'm making a bit of chardonnay now but um you know there was a lot more to offer so it just seemed to make sense for some of the importers here and distributors so you know what it, what is interesting though is this sort of next generation of winemakers coming up uh, that are pushing the envelope you know what be it with some orange wines or natural wines mm. uh, organic production you know there's some uh, talk of biodynamic production which I haven't seen much of in Hawks Bay mm. um, but I've had a bit of experience with in Martinboro but uh, they are pushing the envelope a little bit, and I kind of feel like they're going to have, even as small guys or medium, they're going to have more success coming over to Australia be with this, you know, the younger generation of drinkers and the fact mm. that we kind of need to be different, you know, uh, and and a little more exciting and a little, you know, maybe where, even if it's just branding or things like that, but the, the wine styles, I mean, let's be honest, Australia doesn't need more wine, you know. <laughs> well, it's interesting you say that because one of the great, confessions that I make when I'm talking in public about Australian wine and this will reflect on New Zealand wine uh, is that I didn't drink it for 10 years effectively look I've tried wines and there's probably the odd bottle here and there but I was definitively not interested in where Australian wine was at mm. until about probably five six seven years ago I didn't drink Australian wine for 10 years everything else but and a lot of New Zealand wine in that time as well was very exciting to me I think what's happened with the Renaissance and the avant-garde sort of sphere of winemaking in Australia has been that my gaze has been drawn back and therefore my gaze has been drawn a little away from Europe and a little away from New Zealand. And I think a lot of younger generation Australian trade, that is people running bars or working as sommeliers in restaurants or in buying roles in interesting bottle shops have sort of done the same thing as well. Everyone's yep. kind of gone, all right, we've done our learning of drinking cool shit from Piedmont, Jura, Beaujolais, and of course elements of New Zealand. Uh, we're now trying to keep up with what's going on with this you know, incredibly vibrant scene in Australia. And by virtue of that affordability and the technical nature of these wines, um, you know, it's, it's kind of like fireworks to zombies. The people are definitively not looking as much at New Zealand and with New Zealand not really having a kind of a present or prevalent avant-garde movement, decided, well, you know, they're kind of wines for an occasion, mm. but not necessarily part of regular drinking repertoires. And therefore, yeah, that there's been, a, I reckon, a, a downturn in terms of those more premium wines or in terms of the wines that sit outside of the mass market wine production that New Zealand has been synonymous with in Australia. Yeah, I've heard a little, you know, the barking of all oh, the Otago Pinot prices and, uh, you know, and, you know, uh, and there is a bit of a sense of, a, again, a focus away from that. But it's also, you know, like you said, a challenge is an opportunity, you know, you, uh, yeah, that's probably 
it's time to shake things up a bit. So. Yeah, I'm, I'm surprised because New Zealand, for me, is a country that leads with creativity and leads with innovation in so many other spheres. Um, wine seems to be generally about safety and a very premium nature at the you know, top end of production. Well, I think in the, you know, the ethos or the, uh, the general consensus, certainly from top down, uh, has been we must maintain premium because we can't compete with volume and we can't, you know, though Marlboro Sav certainly does, but for a lot yeah. of the other thing, And we must maintain price because we, you know, we're something like 0.04% of the world's production mm. or something. And, you know, it's pretty remarkable that you can walk into a wine shop in New Jersey and there's a whole New Zealand section, yeah. you know. So uh, they, they have been successful in that, but I think bottom up, you know, we, you know, and I include myself in this, uh, we see a lot of, you know, shut doors and blocked doors and, well, you know, um, who are you and what, you know, and not yeah. to say that I haven't been treated fairly. I think I've been treated fairly. It's just like, well, where's the opportunity here? Yeah. And so you're so, we're sort of forced to um, get creative, do something different. I'm just like, why not, you know, and give it a go. Uh, so I think it's coming. And I certainly know of in Hawke's Bay, um, I could list off a dozen mm. guys and girls like me, assistant winemakers and people mm. trying to do some different weird things. And um, there is a big push for organic production now. And it's coming from, you know, people my age or younger. And there's a big wake up call right now. This past two seasons in Hawke's Bay where there's a lot of growers and a lot of people that were getting fat off the, the big producers for a while. Maybe not getting fat, but having... You know, making some money and just kind of coasting and, and mm. uh, that, you know, those contracts are starting to go away. They run, you know, they expire. They don't get renewed. They had a tough season, a couple in a row. The fruit got rejected. And what do we do now? And so there'll be a thinning of the herd in that sense. But also, you know, I just talked to a grower last week or two weeks ago who I was kind of helping um, Somebody, I don't want to get into drop any names, but somebody in Martinboro asked me to check out this vineyard because they're going to buy some fruit for the rosé. Gorgeous vineyard, right? Really well maintained. You can tell they're doing their work. They had a grower block of Merlot up front and a grower block of Savvy in the back and then Hillside Franc, Arnais, hmm. and Alberino, and that stuff was awesome, right? So I just checked in with them a couple weeks ago. I said, oh, so-and-so hasn't renewed our Sauvignon Blanc contract. We're thinking about pulling out the Savvy. And I was like, you guys have worked... 15 years on this vineyard I know you work hard and there's got to be an alternative I said if that was certified organic fruit I have 10 friends that would buy it mm. and you're just thinking about the and and they would pay more for it than you've been getting you know so there's answers out there mm. you know and they're gonna start to wake up to the fact that either you will rip your vineyard out or you know, like I'm not interested in bulk Sauvignon Blanc but if there was an organic Sauvignon Blanc vineyard that had mm. some interesting terroir I would buy it in a, you know, and yeah. I and I'd split it up between five or six friends, and we do some, tr you know, yeah. we'd make something fun out of it. So, um, the reality is, it's going to hit these people in the purse, you know, and when they want to sell their fruit, and they need to look to the newer producers to do that, we want organic. You know, I'm not going to say we're going to find biodynamic out there. Mm. That's a kind of a um, a bigger commitment, a long-term commitment from somebody out there. Um, but I think you'll start to see 
more of that being pushed and with that an opening of the mindset to like let's try different styles too let's do you know and it's already happening i mean i yeah. know of half a dozen people that are making you know uh you know skin fermented wines and you know on the side and they don't know what they're going to do what the label's going to be yet yeah. or something like that so it's coming up uh and you know and varietal wise too there's some you know i think cab franc and hawks bay is going to be something down the road that's going to be pretty interesting you know and it's a you know malbec as well these things were just blended away and i would talk to them about you know malbec for instance i'd say i thought you guys didn't you guys make like a single varietal malbec before they're like yeah we did we just sold it all through the cellar door and i'm like well, <laughs> yeah where is it it's did you make any this year and like no and i'm like you sold out of your wine and you didn't make any more you know yeah. and you have all this other wine sitting here so um there's stuff like that that's pushing things in different directions so uh, hopefully uh, that eventually reaches places like australia and the states and things um but it is easier it's right across the ditch you know that's right <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's yeah you know, a similar language and similar currency mm. for want of a better expression i can use my westpac card uh <laughs> freely at uh, all the you know the fast pays everywhere you know? <laughs> yeah, 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 and yeah. even choose to use it in new zealand dollars it's exciting so um well, cool, man. Is there anything else you want to say? Are you good? Or uh, yeah, I'm good. I mean, it's been a delight talking, and uh, just cranked out an hour. That was that was pretty quick. Yeah, look at that. It just yeah. went. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, look, it's, I'm deeply honoured to be chosen to talk. I'm oh, always thrilled that people are interested. I get a lot of uh, winemakers, but um, yeah, I think the wine writer. It's kind of an interesting relationship, the winemaker wine writer. And once again, my uh, ignorance is bliss in the sense that. Uh, I'm okay to just ask anybody to do it and uh, I think there should be bigger dialogues between the two mm. uh, you know there's probably I don't, really, don't know too many wine writers that are, that are great writers as well mm. uh, and uh, we but we enjoy reading about wine and reading about as you mentioned all the other things that affect uh, winemaking which is you know politics and geography and everything else that goes along with it uh, so yeah, I think it's reciprocal. We hope you come to Hawks Bay soon and Martin oh, we'll soon. return again. Yes. Yes. Uh, it was only last year that I was in both. Yeah. So this year I was in Auckland, checking out the Auckland wine region, the mm -hmm. shrinking Auckland wine region, yeah. let's call it, and down in central Otago as well. But I'm, yeah, we, I chop and change where I go each year. Uh, what was the other wine you poured at Pinot 17? Was it California wine? No, the other one I poured at Pinot 17 oh, it was, was... Tasmanian, right? No, no. No? No, it was... It was um, it was Mount Pleasant MV Pinot, which is the Mothervine MV6 clone that's the oldest Pinot block in the world, effectively, and is the progenitor clone vineyard block for all MV6 Pinot that exists on so the planet. So is the Burgundy there? No, it was from Mount Pleasant, was Hunter Valley. Oh, Hunter. Yeah, and I, I, both of my wines were illustrative. They weren't meant to be definitively quality wines, and people were mumbling, well, this one's too weird because it's from Switzerland, and... This one's, you know, no, a bit, bit you know, yeah. a bit, you know, it's got a bit of a hunted thing going on in it. And the idea was, no, like this is illustrative to my conversation. They're just mere marker stones. They're not about saying, here's the best pinot no, I can no. bring to the table. No, that was everybody that. else's job. My yeah. job was to enunciate about, you know, what is the sense of quality that we find in both these wines. They're both at polar opposites in terms of style, but both have a valid value place in the world of wine. One is about creating clonal integrity for Australia, being an old vineyard, what's being done to this wine from a very old family company. The other is what's the, you know, what's 
what's the alternative edge, thinking yeah. the, mm. about viticulture and the most important thing growing the good fruit you know mm. here's somebody really putting it out there so they were the two examples was yeah mount pleasant's mv pinot and mythopia's pinot very curious to see what they do uh if they do what would it be Pinot, Pinot 21, because that would we poured 13s at the 17. Yeah, I don't think we're gonna pour 17s at the <laughs> at the 21. Tough vintage. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'll be serious. 16 was good. 18 was great. 17 just did say. <laughs> I think there'll be some executive decisions there, but yeah, uh, we'll see. All right, man. Thanks a lot. Cheers. Thank you. Thanks, Mike. More information on Mike is easily found by a quick internet search. I'll have some links up on the podcast and in the show notes, but he's at MikeBenny101. Benny is spelled B-E-N-N-I-E. On Instagram and Twitter, though, he seems to use Instagram a lot more. Again, I'll have more info on Mike websites and things like that in the show notes, so please check that out on iTunes or on the website, dbpodcast.org. I am at Decibel Dan on most things like Twitter, Instagram, and WeChat, as well as Decimal Wines up on Facebook. And of course, visit DecimalWines.com and use the promo code DBPODCAST to receive 10% off your first order. And we do ship to Australia and all over the world, the EU, places like that. And thanks again to CoreyWine.com. They've been a great, great sponsor for us uh, the past, this sort of season, this whole season. Next week, we've got a great chat with Master Wine and Chief Winemaker at Kumi River, Michael Bradchevich. Uh, He is, he and his family were great to me. And uh, yeah, I look forward to you guys hearing that. Cheers. (laughs) 